Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 1. We've already sung it. We've already talked about it. It is Mary's song, also known as the Magnificat. Um, and let us uh, pick up in verse 39 of chapter 1 of Luke's gospel. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Father, help me to proclaim your testimony with simplicity this morning. Help me to know Christ and Him crucified, that your people might know Him more completely. Demonstrate your power through the Spirit, so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember as a young Christian, one of the concerts I went to, I can't remember who it was, but Stephen Curtis Chapman was the opening band. See, that's how long ago it was. He was the opening band. All right, His first album was out, and I ended up going and buying it, and I really liked his first two albums. But then he kind of took some musical turns that were not incredibly interesting to me, so I basically didn't listen to Steve Curtis Chapman. One day, a couple of years ago, I was listening to the radio, probably in the car, and a song of his came on that really hit me. And I thought it was a great song. And it is called, Much of You. And he starts off uh, really kind of wrestling with some of the realities. I'm going to read a little bit of the lyrics to you this morning. How could I stand here and watch the sunrise? Follow the mountains where they touch the sky. Ponder the vastness and the depths of the sea. And think for a moment that uh, the point of it all was to make much of me. So he's looking at creation. He says, how could I even imagine that the point of all of this is me? Because I'm just a whisper, and you are the thunder, 
And I will make much of you, Jesus. I will make much of your love. I want to live today to give you praise. That you are worthy, you alone are so worthy of. I want to make much of your mercy. I want to make much of your cross. When I was reading the Magnificat this week in preparation for this sermon, that's the song that came to me. Because that is essentially what is going on in this text. Human nature, by nature, our fallen nature, as Martin Luther said, we are curved in upon ourselves. We tend to be incredibly self-focused. We tend to think about our needs above everybody else's needs, our wants above everybody else's wants. We're just self-centered, right? Here comes a song that recognizes that it's not about me, that I should be making much of you, Jesus. And this is exactly what we see in this particular text. Let's go see why it is there. The big idea this morning is that the Spirit works in us to make much of Jesus. And so we are to make much of God's blessing upon the humble. This is set up because we see, last week we looked at how the angel Gabriel came in two separate visits, separated by about uh, three months, uh, six months time, sorry, uh, to first Zechariah and then into Miriam, or Mary as we call her in the anglicized form, to announce the birth of these two children that will change history forever. One, John the Baptist, and the other, Jesus the Messiah. Well, when Mary hears about the fact that Elizabeth is with child at that moment, she rushes off. She, as the text says, makes haste, or she's a a woman on a mission. She wants to go to see Mary. She wants to celebrate the great news of what God has done. And what's really interesting as I thought about this text this morning is that Mary enters into the house, and all of a sudden, in a sense, a worship service breaks out, and there are things that are spoken in the midst of this that Elizabeth would have no way of knowing. Okay, how does she know? Because Gabriel didn't say anything to Zechariah about the fact that this Mary was going to be bearing the Messiah. She knew nothing of this, and yet she recognizes Somehow, that, this is the mother of her Lord. And the answer, in fact, is found in the fact that the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is working in John, even though he is in the womb, because we see that he leaps with joy. And Elizabeth is able to recognize what's going on. That is just not a normal sort of baby in the belly sort of rumbling that goes around. This is not your normal kicking of the side. Something incredibly different has just taken place within her, and she recognizes that. But not only that, but the text says that she was filled with the Spirit, and she is speaking under the power, under the influence, under the direction and with the wisdom and knowledge of that same Holy Spirit. We can't miss that. We can't miss the fact that it is the work of the Spirit that is going on here, because that is the only thing that can free us from that being curved in and that self-centeredness. That is the only thing that enables us to look outside of ourselves and to begin to see the reality of who Christ is and what Christ has done and to make much of that. That's really the key here. 
the work of God's Spirit, not just in them, but Luke is showing us this throughout his whole gospel so that we will recognize that we too are supposed to live a life that is characterized by the fullness of the Spirit. The first fruits of those uh, that, we, we, that those who believe in Christ have received for their salvation. And so she starts off with this word, blessed. Now there's two different ways you can use the word blessed, typically. Uh, one is someone who has been blessed, but we also see that people bless God, and we don't ask God to be blessed, but it's a word of, that reflects a, a, a way of praise, to exalt. And when, we, when, I, when you look at the Greek word here, it's the word that we get eulogize from. To speak well of, to praise, to extol. But it also can carry that connotation of, of calling down God's gracious power. What is this? What is going on? It's probably similar to just what we read uh, in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered, transgressions are covered over. Fortunate is the one. They have experienced God's gracious power. Now, as we think about this text and we see how, how, how the church has dealt with this in history, we see that the church of Rome has focused on this aspect of praise. They're looking at it that Mary is being praised. We are to venerate Mary, they say. And I go, no. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. We should see it rather in that the idea that she is fortunate, that she has God's blessing placed upon her. This is, not an, uh, this is not a cry of praise to another person. She's not venerating Mary. She's worshiping the God who blessed Mary. God's gracious power is on both Mary and on Jesus, this baby that is within her womb, who should be praised. But Mary doesn't really fit the profile of someone who should, that we would recognize as being fortunate, as being blessed, as God's power being on her, because she's not rich. She is not powerful. She is not influential. She is not of a great reputation. As we talked about last week, she's most likely a teenager. She's a teenager who, in her haste, left town with a new child in her body. She's going to spend three months with, Mary, with Elizabeth. She's going to come back with a baby belly. And everyone's going to wonder, where did that come from? No one's going to know that it was the Holy Spirit who came and overshowered her. Joseph is going to go, what in the world is, where has she been for three months? Maybe he got a, maybe he got a notification before, hey, honey, I'm leaving town. We don't know. But she comes back, and she's pregnant. She is about to experience something very different from what we would call blessedness, being fortunate. She is a mysteriously pregnant teenager. But Elizabeth is focused on God's work in the other person. I mean, she could have been all about the baby in my belly. Because remember, John, he's going to be great. She could focus on that. But she's focused on someone even greater because of the work of God's Spirit in her. It is his blessing of the lowly, unimportant Mary that has her attention. 
And so we see that Mary then begins, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Meaning to make great, to make large, to magnify, glorify, or praise. Why does God's glory need to be magnified? John Piper gives an illustration I'm going to steal right now. And he talks about we, see, we have two different ways of magnifying things. We, and, you know, scientists have microscopes, right? And so you have this little tiny thing that you, that's on the slide that you put into the microscope so that you can see something that is far too small for your eye to see, to see the detail. So it, it makes something very tiny and minute big enough for you to see and to study. That's not what's here. Rather, it's more like the telescope, which takes something which is gigantic but is so far off and so obscure to the naked eye that you need the lens to be able to see its splendor and its glory. We as sinners are so far away from God, we are so distant from Him that we cannot behold His glory and it needs to be magnified so that we might behold it. And and so Mary here also filled with the Holy Spirit, I would imagine, since this same Spirit overcame her and conceived this child in the womb, is now speaking, bringing the glory near, helping us to see the glory of God and what's going on. He's going to, she's going to make us see the greatness by drawing it near. She turns her own gaze from herself. She could have gone, yeah, I'm fortunate, I'm blessed, I'm so happy. But she's focused on the glory and the greatness of God. She's turning her gaze to the Savior. She is not part of an entitlement generation. She's not thinking, I deserve this. She's not thinking, you know, I deserve even better than this. But she makes note of her humble estate. She refers to her condition, not necessarily her attitude. But she recognizes that God did not overlook her, but rather that God noticed her and began to work. He looked upon her humble estate and he did great things for her. First Corinthians 1. I seem to end up here a lot. I don't know why. Maybe I need the reminder. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. There's the theme that we find running through Scripture. That God gives grace to the humble. He looks upon those who are lowly and afflicted. And she is making much of that blessing of God upon those who are in humble conditions. And she recognizes that many will call me blessed. And she uses a different word than the one that we get uh, eulogy from. This one is the one that we find in the Beatitudes. Macarizo, fortunate, blessed, happy, future generations, Endless generations are going to call her one who is fortunate and blessed. They're not going to worship her. Fortunate and blessed. Now, 
Again, this is a striking contrast to the vast majority of the current generation who, at least initially, would not see her as blessed but as sinful. The accusations when she returns to Nazareth are going to start flying. How is it you're with a child? It's going to be so bad that, that Joseph is going to try and divorce her privately to, to spare her some measure of shame. She was not looked upon as one who was fortunate and blessed for another 30-ish years. All during the rest of that time, she would hear the whispers, there goes the one. The rumors that were started that she was raped by a Roman soldier. All of those things. She would hear those How is it when you're the only one who knows the truth? And no one will believe you. No one could believe you. Joseph wouldn't have believed her if it was not for a dream when God appeared to him and reassured him of the truth. So, apart from the work of the Spirit, we tend to make much of self, but these women make much of God's work toward the humble. Secondly, we are to make much of God's mercy to sinners. Okay? Stephen Curtis Chapman went from creation to God's mercy towards sinners, his work of redemption. Now, as a sinner and as a teenager, okay, Mary's both of these things. I mean, you guys know teenagers, right? What are teenagers all about? Themselves. Okay? It's a world like this. Everything revolves around them and and they can be very hard to live with, I think. I'm sure I was hard to live with. Um, and I was a boy. I wasn't a girl. Ask, I'm gonna, I, pray for me when those years come, please. Okay? But perhaps you've, you know, Mary was, would, would normally, apart from the work of grace, be just like them. All turned in on herself. It would be in like an, an episode of Teen Mom. I don't know if any of you have ever... I haven't seen that show. I've just seen commercials for that show. It's probably off the air now, for, to which we must praise God. Okay? But the idea of all these, you know, uh, drama queen teenage girls having babies is just bad, bad, bad. She could have been that way. That could have been her. But the Spirit of God is at work turning her vision outward, as we've noticed. And we too, though we're not teenagers, we need that work of the Spirit so that we as Christians are not focused on us and our needs and our wants and our desires and blah, 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 and the world revolves around. We need to be relieved of that as well. We need God's Spirit to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And so because her eyes of her heart are focused upon the Lord, she says she rejoices. Mary is filled with incredible joy, which again, in the context of her circumstances, does not is unbelievable to borrow from last week. It's unbelievable to me that she would be joyful, rejoicing, ecstatic, pleased, happy. I could go on. Okay? She's, she is taking a, a page out of Jesus' book. Okay? Who, for the joy that was before him, endured the scorn and the shame of the cross. 
Okay, she's rejoicing because of the end of what will happen eventually, even though right now is not exciting, not pleasurable, not even the remotest happy. She's looking past that. She's, she's looking past the scorn and past the shame that she's going to endure to the joy that God will bring to his people. Her eyes are not on herself. She rejoices specifically in God, my Savior. She recognizes that she needs to be saved and that God is the one who will save her. Not not salvation from her circumstances, although that word can mean that. But I believe she's recognizing that she is a sinner. That she, apart from, from the Savior, is under condemnation, is unable to be right with God, and that she needs to be delivered from her sin and her misery. But she recognizes that there is one, that God is her Savior. He's going to deliver her. We won't have joy in God unless we know that we needed deliverance and that He did it. We will only make much of Him for His work of salvation if we recognize our incredible need for that work of salvation. If we think we just need a little bit of touch-up makeup to, to, to be presentable before God, we are not going to be very grateful. But just as... Jesus said in one of his um, one of his parables after the one of the Pharisees who invited him to dinner um, had been making fun of this woman who was crying much and washing his feet with his tears. And he makes the illustration: Who loves more, the person who has been forgiven much or forgiven little? And his powerful point to the Pharisee was: You have been forgiven little, so you love little. But she has been forgiven so much, and she's so filled with joy. She's so full of love for the one who delivered her. When we minimize our sin, we minimize our joy necessarily because we, we do not have a full view of what Christ has done for us. Mary is grasping that. John Calvin notes that it is the Father's kind, uh, fatherly kind, yeah, can't read this morning. It is God's fatherly kindness alone and the salvation flowing from it that fills the soul with joy. So Calvin here is is recognizing that it is from our salvation that our joy flows. It is is our knowledge that we have been saved from sin and and our experience of that that is is meant to well up in joy. Joy. And if, we don't have, if we're not welling up in joy, then we can start to ask that question. How aware am I of what Christ has done for me? Or maybe I need to spend time meditating upon that or believing it. So we also should make much of Jesus as our Savior because we know far more this side of the cross than she knew at the Incarnation. See, she doesn't know how God's going to save her. She doesn't know at this point that Messiah, her son, who's going to grow up and be a man, is going to be nailed to a tree and bear the sins of the world. She doesn't know that. But we do. So we should be filled with joy. 
Is your mind drawn to the cross? Is the Spirit giving you joy? Or is this just sort of like, yeah, I've heard that before. Okay, can we move on now? Are we struck by the nature of this? And so the Spirit works in those God saves to rejoice in Christ and in His saving work. Last part of this is to make much of God's power for the weak. Mary looks beyond her own weakness, beyond her own vulnerability to the greatness of God. Okay, now, stop about this. Stop here for a moment. Her own weakness. She's pregnant. There's a weakness that is involved there. But particularly the vulnerability that she experiences as a woman in Israel and a woman who is mysteriously pregnant. She is incredibly vulnerable at this time. She could easily be exploited or oppressed and cast into a world of absolute destitution. But she recognizes that the one who loved her, the one who saved her, is he who is mighty. And she focuses upon God's power. And it is not just a power in an abstract, but she she talks about power that is at work for her. That this mighty God is going to act on her behalf and do certain things. She recognizes that God's power is used to bless His people. Before I got lost in Pitcher Rocks yesterday, as I was driving through the Saguaro National Forest on the windy roads there, I started thinking about some of that. And I, cause I, cause I know how ungrateful I can be sometimes about the things that I, that God has given me. And for some reason, as I'm driving, I was just reminded how good I've got. How fortunate I am. That's, that ought to be normal for us to reflect on as many graces towards us. How He has worked for us and done great things for us. She makes this shift from he who is mighty to his name is holy. As I first looked at this, I'm like, okay, what's the connection there? Why does she go from mightiness to holiness? This doesn't seem to make sense initially. I think it's precisely in the fact that he uses his power differently than most people. Use power. That's the idea of holiness, that idea of, of otherness, of, of uh, you know, Sproul's Holiness of God series, which is currently for free on uh, the Amazon or something like that, for Kindle. Get it. If you haven't read it, get it. Okay, this holy otherness, the fact that God is above and beyond us and, and, and who we are. And part of that relates to his power and how he uses his power. It is so different from what we are used to seeing people with power do. He does not abuse his power. He's not arbitrary in the use of his power. He's not cruel in the use of his power. He's not the neighborhood bully. He's not big, bad Leroy Brown, the baddest man in the whole town. Okay? All right? That's not him. He's completely different in how he uses that power. 
Okay? And she follows it up with, He has scattered. He has brought down. Okay, He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and that's the disposition of their hearts. Uh, it's not a person who merely has a proud thought, but he is proud. It's sort of the defining way in which he looks at himself. God brings down those who are mighty from their thrones, the, the people who have earthly power and authority. And so God does not serve the prideful and the powerful. He's not to be, confe- to be accused of, of cronyism, of just looking at the other people who are powerful and, you know, the rich making the rich richer kind of thing, the powerful making the powerful more powerful. That's not God. In fact, we see from Scripture that he hates and opposes those who make much of themselves, the proud. There's a reason that's in Scripture so often. Okay? Think of it this way. I'm sure many of you have seen Gilligan's Island. Okay? Is there anyone in this room whose favorite character is Thurston Howell the third. Is there anyone? Come on, I want to see a hand. How come no one likes Thurston? Because he's arrogant. It's not because he's rich. It's because he's arrogant and rich. Oh, Levy, you know he, he's, <laughs> he's 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 the quintessential you know rich guy from the Northeast. Okay, you know, he's got the accents and all that kind of stuff. And, and he never contributes anything to anyone else in this whole mess. He's always the one that everyone else has to kind of help out. Okay, we even like Gilligan more than we like Thurston Howell III. And Gilligan gets into a lot of trouble. Okay, you don't like the arrogant, you know. Think of the backlash. The Miami Heat last year said, oh, we're going to win all these NBA titles. And what happened? Everyone was like, jerks. Hope they lose. So they get to the NBA finals, and what's going on? Most of the nation, aside from people in Miami, are going, boo, Heat. Yay, Mavericks. It would have been anybody. They didn't care, except maybe the Lakers. You know, (laughs) because of the arrogance of the players of the heat. That's a reflection of of God's image in us that we, too, oppose the proud, unless, of course, we happen to be the one who's proud. But we don't really recognize ourselves as proud. So we're surprised when people oppose us. What's going on here? You must be the problem. Sometimes we are the problem. But God topples them. This is good news for those who are, who are oppressed, for those who are exploited. And in that day and age, that was literally the 99%. Actually, probably the 99.999%. Because very few people had power and authority in that day and age. Very few people had money in that day and age. You had to be on Rome's side if you wanted any of that. Okay? So... What we see is that God is not abiding by the status quo. He's not just kind of going, oh, yeah, everything's kind of good. It's bad, and I'm going to do something about it. Not only that, but we see that he fills the hungry. 
He doesn't just end the oppression, but he helps the hungry, the poor. He fills them. And there's something that we need to recognize about ourselves in this equation. Are we needy? Do we bring that to him? Just as Jesus teaches us in his prayer to do? Give us this day our daily bread. Not give us this day my, year, my annual salary. Okay, Or give us this day my entire retirement fund. But there's a dependence that, recognize, that is there that functions in the, in the reality that we're hungry, that we have some needs. And my needs might be different from your needs, but they exist. And where are you going with those? Or are you just thinking that you can take care of it yourself? Kelly Capick, in his, one of his books, notes that when we are faced with our vulnerability, as Mary is here, with our lack of power and control, with our great need, in those times our hearts often ache with the longing to belong to one who can be trusted, who is truly sovereign and good, even in the midst of of our fears. That's what Mary sees. One who can be trusted. Do you see that same one? John, the Baptist, would expect Jesus to bring judgment. But he neglected the promises that are right around them to exalt the humble. I can't remember who I was reading this week, but they, they, they brought that up because John, he's in prison, and I'm reading Luke right now, so this is about, I just read this this week, and he's not sure. I mean, remember, he leapt in the womb when, when the, in the womb Jesus shows up, okay? He baptizes Jesus, he most likely hears the voice from heaven that says, This is my Son, whom I love. He sees a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending upon Jesus, and yet he's in prison for criticizing Herod, and he writes a note to Jesus and gives it to his disciples, and the note says, Are you really the one, or is there someone else? Okay, his perspective was askew, not, probably because he's like, he's not toppling Herod. His boys haven't busted me out. Whatever it is, he's not seeing the intrusion of God's judgment at that time upon the wicked. But how does Jesus respond? From the same passages of Scripture that, that in Isaiah that, that John probably had in mind, but he says the, the gospel is preached to the poor. The blind see. The prisoners are set free. The good part of the gospel is what Jesus points to, which is what Mary is seeing here. 
Mary knows that she is not the only person of a humble estate who is going to be exalted, but God is so full of an abundant of mercy. He has helped His people, she says, and she expects God to continue to do all of these great things to His people, to those who fear His name. And so you and I, we live in a very self-absorbed world. Okay? One that is turned in upon itself. People make much of themselves. They make much of their accomplishments or they make much of their needs. Sort of like two ticks without a dog. Um, But God the Spirit works in all who rely upon Jesus to save them in order to redirect their gaze from self to Savior, to make much of Jesus. We make much of Jesus because He has noticed our humble estate. He has noticed our sin, our guilt, our condemnation, our misery. He has he's had mercy upon us. He uses His power to sustain us, though we are weak, and to topple the powerful. And we are to make much of Him, not just in prayer, not just when we're almost lost in the Saguaro National Forest. We're to make much of Him in, in public worship. But not just that, we're also to make much of Him in proclaiming Him to those who need to know what He has done. In other words, it's not just for us. Which is, the, which is one of the whole points of Luke. Okay, and when he starts off the introduction, because the people he heard this from are proclaiming it, they're ministers of the word, and it's not just supposed to be, you know, 12 guys called apostles who are ministers of the word. It is all of us who believe the word are to be ministers of that word. We are not just to come and to be, make much of him here. We need to make much of him there. And over there, and over there, and over there. only way we'll do it is just like it acts the Holy Spirit comes and gives power to testify to Jesus let's pray Father I ask that you would save us from our preoccupation with ourselves though most of us here have cried out for Christ to save us, we still are sinners and we still get preoccupied with ourselves. And so grant that we would be a people who do indeed make much of Jesus, our Creator, our Savior, our Sustainer. Put our eyes upon Him and help us to consider Him and what He has done for us. But we need Your Spirit to come and to accomplish this in us. It is not something we can do on our own. It is part of Christ's work in us by that Spirit. And so, without that, we will, He will not work through us to make Him known. So, Father, we need You to be at work to accomplish this, to change us. And so we ask this for our good and for Christ's glory. Amen.